This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening, everyone. Tonight I'm taking you to Pitt Street Uniting Church in Sydney. It's a lovely old sandstone building saved by Jack Mundy and the Green Bands. There was a buzz in the air about where we are heading. Although we've signed up to serious emissions cuts at Paris, it's hard to imagine Australia investing massively in renewable energy, much less becoming a renewable energy superpower, yet that was the subject of the evening. BZE's CEO Stephen Bygrave said there are trillions of dollars in clean energy investment ready to be made globally. Then Gerard Drew, the author of the Renewable Energy Superpower Report, said we were in the transition era right now. In this time, there will be a high demand for efficiency equipment and renewable energy, but that will recede as most countries will eventually produce their own energy. We will stop needing imported oil and we'll stop seeing the huge number of ships full of coal and gas crossing the seas. After 2030, because of our abundance of low-cost renewable energy, we'll see industries relocate here. The tone of deep caring was set by Pitt Street's Minister, Dr Margaret Maywin. Then the Honourable Mark Butler gave the keynote address. This was followed by a panel featuring crisp comments from energy analyst Tim Buckley, who told us how India and China had left fossil fuels behind. He quotes China's state grid chairman, who said, The only hurdle to overcome is mindset. There is no technical challenge at all. So there was a thrilling air of let's get on with it in the audience. And the audience contains some of our most influential thinkers. So welcome to Beyond Zero Emissions Renewable Energy Superpower launch in Sydney. So, Pitt Street. We are committed to ecological justice. We are committed to justice. Our congregation has been gathering in Sydney for 183 years, and during that time the physical environment has transformed around us. We have gone from being one of the largest and most imposing buildings on Fifth Street to being dwarfed by office and commercial buildings. But we have endured, and whatever has been happening in the urban environment around us, we have been building relationships in the city and working for peace and justice. We celebrate an inclusive community where everyone is welcome, regardless of race, class, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, nationality. 
People of every faith and people who do not identify with any faith are very welcome here. So on behalf of my whole congregation, I hope that you feel at home in this space. We have this wonderful asset in the centre of Sydney. We need it on Sunday mornings, but we are really happy to share it with the community around us the rest of the week. We are involved in all sorts of justice uh, work um, in supporting um, constitutional recognition of Indigenous Australians, working to welcome refugees and asylum seekers, supporting the dignity of LGBTI people, including advocating for marriage equality, and seeking peace in families and communities and nations, and caring for creation and advocating use of renewable energy resources and policies that respect the earth. In this latter attempt, we join you today, believing that addressing climate change and saving our planet is the most critical justice issue facing the human race. We do not believe that spirituality and science are in opposition, but that each have something to offer the other in this crucial work. I want to read you a quotation from theologian and philosopher Thomas Berry. He wrote, An absence of a sense of the sacred or is the basic flaw in many of our efforts at ecologically or environmentally adjusting our human presence to the natural world. It has been said, we will not save what we do not love. It is also true that we, we will neither love nor save what we do not experience as sacred. So those of us who are here tonight from Pitt Street are delighted to share in this occasion, sharing wisdom and knowledge and in tapping hope in human hearts that will enable us to live differently on this one beautiful planet that is our only home. We hope that your experience here tonight will encourage you on your journey toward a world renewed and made more equitable and just for all its inhabitants. Margaret, for those warm words of welcome. And uh, we'll now move to Mark, uh, and I've done the introduction already, so uh, please, Mark. Well, thank you, Stephen, and, and thank you, Margaret, to the United Church for hosting us tonight. Um, thank you, Stephen, for the acknowledgement of country. Can I add my respects to uh, the elders, both past and present, of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation? Uh, and uh, thank them for their custodianship over many, many thousands of years. Uh, I want to thank Stephen and BZD not only for this report and for the invitation to be here tonight, but for the work that, as Stephen outlined, they've been doing now for uh, really some time. Uh, Stephen, the CEO, is supported by a great board, and as you see, the people around the, uh, the hall or the church in blue T-shirts, a real army of volunteers. Uh, theirs is not only a campaigning mission, theirs is a mission to educate uh, and to outline in very, very fine detail, I might say, Stephen, report after report, quite how we can take this journey down a pathway to a clean energy future. Uh, and as Malcolm Turnbull said about your organisation years ago, it really is um, a very, almost unique, but very important work that you do in Australia. And Stephen did mention in his introduction, but BZE uh, was, uh, was announced uh, last year, very late last year, as one of the 10 think tanks in the world to watch in 2016. I think the only Australian think tank, certainly the highest ranked uh, Australian think tank at number six of a very, very vast number of think tanks that we have around the world. And I think that reflects 
the well-deserved uh, accolade reflects the detailed work of EZE has done now for some years. But also, as Stephen outlined, and Margaret mentioned as well, the very, very topical nature of the Zero Carbon Australia mission, which is really at the core of the work that BZE does. As Stephen said, it's now three months since the Paris Conference, and there's been a great debate, I think, not only about the outcome of the conference, which really against any indicator we might have thought of six years ago after the disappointment of Copenhagen was a very successful conference, but a debate also about how it got there, how, how we achieved that. And, and, and in truth, I think, as someone who was only there a very short period of time, you know, in truth, I think there were a range of different factors at play in getting us to the end of that conference. I think the American and Chinese leadership over the last 18 months was incredibly important. When those two hyperpowers now uh, agree on an outcome, it's very hard for the rest of the world, even the recalcitrant nations among the world community, to resist. Chinese and American leadership of the type we saw 18 months before. The French managed the conference really, really well, I thought, particularly by expecting countries to lodge their nationally determined contributions several months before the conference, instead of coming to Copenhagen very late and expecting to wrap things up very quickly. Uh, we, I must say, the French could have put on some more vegetarian catering, the biggest environment meeting in the world. You could not get a baguette without some species of pig in the middle of it, the love of money, which I found peculiar. But now than that, it was an extraordinarily well-managed conference. Uh, when the nation negotiators, the national negotiators, were getting a bit off track, uh, I think everyone was, uh, was really quite amazed at the degree to which sub-national governments, the City of Sydney, many other cities from Australia, state governments, provincial governments from around the world, really stepped up and pushed those national negotiators to get them back on track. So many businesses were really a presence urging rather than resisting action, unlike really almost all of the previous talks. But I think the thing that really determined a successful outcome, or drove a successful outcome, is the fact that, in truth, um, nations across the world are now making the transition to a clean energy future. And the 2015 data, whichever one you want to look at, the 2015 data confirmed that. Last year, uh, renewable energy investment was larger than the combined investment in coal, gas, nuclear, and hydropower. Chinese renewable investment was bigger than the United States and the European Union combined. Ernst and Young projected late last year that by 2020, China would have lifted its solar targets from 100 to 150 gigawatts and its wind power targets from 200 to 250 or even as high as 280 gigawatts just over the next four years. To put that in some context, the entire electricity system in Australia is about 50 gigawatts. And it's not just China. India has very ambitious solar targets. Over the last five years, the United States has closed or announced a date for closure of 200 of its 500 or so coal-fired power stations. Very recently, a UK Tory government announced that the last coal-fired power station in the United Kingdom, in many ways the home or the birthplace of coal-fired power, will be closed by 2023. And these reflect, I think, very hard-headed decisions by national governments that are directed at a couple of things or recognise a couple of things. Firstly, they want to position their economy and their people to take maximum advantage of the jobs and investment opportunities that come from that clean energy revolution. But they also reflect the recognition that, as the Bank of England Governor said only in September, the window to address climate change is finite 
and at shrinking. Now, none of this is to say that the transition to a clean energy future is going to be easy. It's hard work. And it's going to be particularly challenging for an economy like Australia that in many ways was built on the back of coal-fired power and the emissions-intensive manufacturing that tends to co-locate with the cheap, abundant power that you get from coal. Now, we are, after all, the heaviest polluting nation in the OECD. Per head of population, we put more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere than any other OECD nation. Per unit of GDP, so in terms of the emissions intensity of our economy, we're the second most intensive economy in the OECD. Something's happening in Estonia that I'm not really clear about. Estonia takes first place, but we are the second most emissions intensive economy in the OECD. We put more, three times more pollution per unit of GDP in the atmosphere than Japan. More than twice as much as the UK and Germany, almost twice as much as the United States, and fully 25% more than the other developed economy that most closely resembles ours, which is Canada. Our electricity sector is one of the dirtiest in the world. We put more pollution per megawatt hour into the atmosphere than China, and 87% more than the OECD average. This is all a big challenge for a nation like that. But it's also an enormous opportunity. Unlike most other sectors, technology already exists to produce electricity cleanly. And that technology is constantly getting better and it's constantly getting cheaper. And Australia doesn't just have a whole lot of coal and gas and uranium. We also have some of the best renewable energy resources on the face of the earth. Across the continent, extraordinary levels of solar radiation. Particularly along the south, we have some of the best wind energy resources in the world. And in the southern ocean, in particular, fantastic tidal and wave energy resources. And we've shown year after year, particularly in the solar revolution, that we have some of the smartest minds and innovative businesses that are just dead keen to drive that clean energy revolution in this country. And we've done it before. When you talk about a renewable energy superpower, we were there in 2013. We were on the cusp of it in 2013. The most influential index in renewable energy globally, the Ernst & Young Quarterly Index, said that we were in 2013 one of the four most attractive countries in which to invest in renewable energy on the face of the earth up there with the three superpowers of renewables, Germany, China, and the US. And this didn't just happen, it reflected hard, good policy, a renewable energy target, creation of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, and ARENA, and in 2012, obviously, the placement of a price on carbon. And it led to really good outcomes. Over the course of our six years in government, we tripled the level of wind energy in Australia. We went from a position where in 2007 only about 7,000 households had rooftop solar to in 2013 1.3 million households having solar power. We tripled the number of jobs in this industry during a period that included the global financial crisis. And just in 2013, with the support of the CEFC and ARENA, we were able to approve the largest wind farm in the Southern Hemisphere and the largest TV solar farm in the Southern Hemisphere, cementing our place as a leader in the region. Now, a good part of the reason why investors flocked to Australia, wanted to spend billions of dollars building renewable energy projects in Australia, was that that renewable energy target had been bipartisan for 15 years. 
investors knew that they could come, spend money, and be secure in the knowledge that that investment would be safe for the 30 or 40 years of its lifetime. But in 2014, all of that changed. In one radio interview that Tony Abbott did with one of your local radio identities here in Sydney, a bloke called Alan Jones, I think, um, we went from a position of 15 years of bipartisan support for the renewable energy target to a crash. In one year, investment collapsed by 88%. Unsurprisingly, we lost our place as the fourth most attractive investment destination in the world. We lost it to India, and we're currently at about 13. We had been the 11th largest spender in the world on renewables. We dropped immediately to 39th behind countries like Myanmar, Honduras, and others. Apparently, the Burmese generals got clean energy, even if Tony Abbott didn't. And unsurprisingly, when coal-fired power stepped into the breach, carbon pollution, after coming down for 12 months by 7% in 12-13 alone, has climbed in the recent 18-month period by 5%. Well, we can get back to being a renewable energy superpower, not only because of the very finely argued technical reasons that the BZE report includes, and I commend the report to you all, but also because we've shown that politically it can be done. But what we need is real ambition back around renewable energy. We've said that we'll take the policy of this election, that if elected, we will make sure that at least 50% of Australia's electricity by 2030 is generated by renewable energy. That will be part of a broader electricity modernisation strategy that looks at questions of how you retire coal-fired power in an orderly way, that looks at an ambitious energy productivity or energy efficiency strategy of the type that is being rolled out in the United States and increasingly around the world at all, as well. We want there to be a debate over the coming few months. Whenever the election happens to be, we want there to be a genuine debate around climate change policy and renewable energy policy. We're not going to give up on this question even if Malcolm Turnbull doesn't choose to turn up to that debate. When we asked him if he would join us in the 50% renewable energy target for 2030 so that it could be bipartisan again and it could attract investment, he described the policy as reckless. And he said in the Parliament question time instead that he would focus on other abatement opportunities such as, to use his words, clean coal. Well, we're going to continue to make the argument for renewable energy. We're going to continue to make the argument for ambitious climate action. And we're going to do that because it is so important that we get back to that position again of being one of the renewable energy superpowers of the world and get back on the path to a clean energy future. Thank you all for coming tonight. I look forward to the panel discussion. Well, if you listen to three oh, clap your hands. If you listen to three oh, clap your hands. If you listen to three oh, you sure know where you are. If you listen to three oh, clap your hands. If you listen to three oh, clap your hands. If you listen to three oh, clap your hands. We'll check out the happy vibe. They're gonna ring up and subscribe. If you listen to three oh, clap your hands. What? Who the hell is that? Flap your hands. What are you talking about? I ain't no elephant. Get out of here. This is handmade radio. Flap your hands. Get out. Get the hell out of here now. were all very aware of the small window we have to transition away from coal, oil and gas. 
They talked about Paris, about Adani, and also about the opportunities, for example, of zero-carbon transport and manufacturing. Keetan Joshi was the MC. I was uh, having a chat on Twitter actually recently with a friend of mine uh, who gave the clean energy industry some free PR advice. Uh, he suggested that a great way to reduce polarization and uh, the role of ideology and bias in the industry would be to rename the wind farming industry the wind mining industry, which would, <laughs> which would bring everyone on board. Uh, I'd like to ask the panelists, do you think that ideological polarization is a problem for the clean energy transition? Uh, and if you do think it's a problem, how do we fix it? I would answer the question by saying it doesn't matter what we do. Because what we do at the moment is stuffing around, debating whether or not, how long will we extract mining for, how long will our, the world and our major trading partners allow it. What I would say is the transition is absolutely inevitable. It has been driven by our major trading partners, and the longer we stuff around, the worse Australia will be. So exactly as Mark and Jared have said, China is moving so fast. China is not debating it. They've already decided, they've already acknowledged that it's a transition that is inevitable and they want to be the world leader in it. And they are moving much, much faster than anyone else in the world understands. Now, what makes it even more powerful is President Obama has got America moving and America's made huge growth, as Mark said. But what gets me really excited is that the third largest economy in the world has also realised, slightly belatedly, that this policy transition is inevitable. India is now moving faster than anyone. And so, to me, it's not about terminology or ideology. It's happening. Our major trading partners are doing it. The longer we debate it, the worse we will be. As Jared said, we just need to get with the picture, get on with it, and look to industries of the future. That was Tim Buckley. He's the CEO of the Institute for Energy, Economic and Financial Analysis, IEFA. Their market forecasts about stranded assets of coal and gas have been spot on. The next panellist is Nikki Ison. She's from the Community Power Agency. I think I agree with Tim saying the transition is inevitable. But what is inevitable is jobs, is maximising the benefit to Australia and justice. I think those are the three dimensions that we have a choice around, and that's where ideology plays a really important role. Uh, it's also not inevitable that it will happen at the speed of which climate change demands, particularly in terms of Australia's climate change commitments. So it's on those four fronts that we in Australia need to take the initiative. And I think that people are voting with their feet. We have over 4 million households, uh, 4 million people living in 1.5 million households. There are now 80 to 85 community energy groups taking leadership in their own communities to transition their communities to clean energy. There are so many different startup organisations and there are moves afoot in the energy industry and states are showing a real amount of leadership. What we're missing is the real leadership at a federal level, and, and Mark certainly shows it, and, and that's not a, a comment on him, but I think in terms of uh, government vision towards high penetration renewables, government vision towards transitioning to Australia to 100% renewables and to becoming a renewable energy superpower, we're not there yet. 
that's why we all need to play a role, in, particularly in the next few months in the lead up to the election, particularly in the few months after the election, to make this as a, keep this on the agenda. But we also need to be talking at, up the business angle and the investment angle, and so that's why it's really great to have a couple of people from the investment perspective here today, because we've just done a report which is very complimentary to the BZV report, which says that Australia could get $800 billion of the renewable energy investment boom in the next uh, 35 years if we get the policy settings right. Hi everyone, could I start by congratulating BZV for another fantastic report and being an engineer, I'm a bit of a technology nerd so I always look up and look forward to reading these reports. Um, I think Stephen when he was introducing um, today's session um, highlighted a quote by Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. Um, something about this report being a really good blueprint and I agree with that and then I think he said something about engineers and scientists needing to do get on with this blueprint tomorrow. Well, I think the engineers and scientists have actually got on with the blueprint. They already have done it today. What's missing is the politicians and the leadership in states and countries. Uh, and I think I also have to, I guess, disagree a little bit with Nikki when she said that the states are already on board. I think it's uh, the states aren't on board. We had the appalling decision just on the weekend by the Labour Queensland government to approve the I think that's really what we need to talk more about is what do we do with coal? Yes, we have to move to renewable energy, but part of that picture of being ambitious is setting massive targets. The Greens have a target for 90% renewable energy by 2030. Those are the sort of targets we really need if we want to be ambitious, but we also have to phase out coal fired power in Australia, which also means not supplying coal, not digging up and um, you know exporting coal to other countries to keep uh, polluting our environment. That's what we've got to stop. And I do hope that if the Labour Party and the Mark get in the government, that they would actually reverse that decision made by the Labour Queensland government. That was Dr. Maireen Faruqi. She's a civil and environment engineer and the Greens member of the New South Wales Parliament. Sitting between her and Mark Butler is Emma Hurd. She is the CEO of the Investor Group on Climate Change. I'll be the human shield in that particular conversation. Here. I'm going to speak on behalf of the ever popular constituency, the finance industry, uh, <laughs> talking about uh, this particular question around, around the ideological dimension. I think often what we see here is uh, a question of working through the issues of status quo bias, as it's often called, where I think as a community we often find it hard to look forward and imagine how we get out of where we are and shift our economy at such a fundamental level to where we know we need to be within the timeframes required when you're looking at an issue like climate change. So I think that to some extent we, we, we struggle to pull ourselves out of where we are and look, over the, look out of the valley and over the mountains to where we need to get to. So that's one element of it. Secondly, this is actually a really complicated area. So it often becomes quite easy to talk in a very binary way about do or don't, good or bad. But in actual fact, what we're talking about is some really complicated structural transitional issues that need to be managed holistically, much as I hate that word. We can't talk about more renewables without talking about what to do with existing jobs in the coal industry. 
And one of the things about the Paris Agreement is that it also emphasises a just transition to a low-carbon economy. So we need to get that right in terms of how we withdraw some of the inefficient high-carbon assets from the energy system to make room for new renewables as well. So there are complex structural and social issues there as well. But that doesn't mean it can't be done, and it doesn't mean we're not doing it, and it doesn't mean we aren't going to get faster and accelerate how we get there, but it just means that it's quite easy to revert to a, to a binary and, and uh, a difficult conversation to revert it back to the language of, of, uh, of, of conflict in a lot of ways. Uh, one, one last point that I would make is that I think that in a note of optimism, I think we've come out of that valley to some extent. I think we've had a very tumultuous decade of carbon politics and I think there is now real hunger and appetite in the community, in business, in politics, in the investment community to try and create some actual solutions to these sorts of issues. So hopefully that status quo bias is something we can now acknowledge and move forward on, but it doesn't mean we're not going to have lots of argy-bargy as well, which when I'll hand over the microphone. Well, um, there is a culture war around climate change in Australia. There aren't many Western countries where there is the sort of depth of a culture war that we experience here in Australia, but it is there, and it, um, it impacts on investor confidence in spite of whatever the policy framework of the day happens to be. And we saw that with the, the um, renewable energy industry after the REP controversy was resolved. The global renewable energy companies thought that they might start to invest again in new renewable energy projects in Australia. But at the same time, the Parliament sort of provided that assurance to those investors. Uh, Joe Hockey went again on Alan Jones and said that the wind farms he drives past to Canberra were utterly offensive, as if we were sort of judging some confronting sculpture at a community art show. And then Tony Abbott told of his abject terror at riding his bike near a wind uh, turbine on Rottnest Island. Uh, so with the same terror that Homer describes, Odysseus sailing between Scylla and Charybdis in the Odyssey. It was all really weird and at a level funny except that the renewable energy companies I deal with all the time said that they had their global CEOs and their global CFOs ring them and say, we've just read this report about what the Prime Minister thinks of wind energy. We thought this was resolved. We thought Australia was a safe investment destination. Emma's, Emma's absolutely right. We've got to get past this culture war that's been going on around climate change since the fight within the Liberal Party room between Adam and Turnbull in 2009. That is the most common message I've got in my consultations over summer from business, from investor representatives like Emma, from environmental groups, from local councils. We need to find the sort of consensus you see in the United Kingdom, for example, where at their general election, there was not a fight about climate change. They've got ambitious targets. They've got a parliamentary endorsed um, carbon budget that's set every five years. They had a minor tip about the balance between onshore wind farms and offshore wind farms. And other than that, Miliband and Cameron agreed on absolutely everything. We've got to get to that position if the sort of investment opportunities that BZD talks about in this report are going to happen in Australia rather than in the countries that Tim talked about. That was Mark Butler, Shadow Minister for the Environment. Last on the panel is Gerard Drew. He is the author of the Beyond Zero Emissions Renewable Energy Superpower Report. We couldn't include his long talk about the detail of the report, but he's the one who sees the transition most clearly. We'll have all electricity serviced from renewable energy. All transport will be electric. 
Industry will be attracted to Australia because of our cheap and reliable energy and we'll export zero carbon products too. This, this culture war has become a real, a real problem where sensible policy is just impossible while you're just appealing to you know, parochial kind of opposition from one end or the other, you know, very, very polarised. Uh, and there's, there's no talk in the middle, there's no meeting to discuss what could be a sensible, workable policy when, if that was done, then lots of very effective solutions would flow out of that. So I think that the sooner that can be arrested, then the sector will take off. Tim, I'd like to ask you uh, about countries as opposed to corporations. Uh, are there any countries or, or I guess, news from specific countries that you feel might be relevant to this new attitude towards climate change policy? I, I spend most of my time studying two countries. That is China, which is half the world's coal production, half the world's coal consumption, and India, which is the largest growing economy in the world and the country that's now trying to replicate what China's doing. And uh, maybe to answer your question, I might just quote two individuals in China and statements they've made. Now, they're quite senior individuals in China, and um, I think they're actually changing the world as we see it. China Shenhua, biggest coal company in the world by market capitalisation, by a country mile. And the chairman last week reported, you would have all read this because it would have been in the front page of every newspaper in Australia, if anyone thought it was relevant uh, in our establishment. But the pace of adjustments to the global energy structure in the short run will speed up and the trend of lowering the consumption proportion of fossil fuels will be obvious. The structural adjustments to the coal and electricity sectors will accelerate. Now, that's the biggest coal company in the world saying it's inevitable and it's accelerating. And China Shenhua totally understands that. That's their chairman last week. The second statement was a statement by China State Grid's chairman. Now, this is the biggest grid operator in the world. The China State Grid's chairman in February 2016, obviously had read BZE's report, he said... The only hurdle to overcome is mindset. There is no technical challenge at all. Now, that's a pretty powerful statement from the country that just installed the largest installation of wind in the world in world history last year. They also installed the largest amount of solar in the world in world history last year as well. So China is breaking records every year in this area and the chairman of the biggest grid operator in the world said there is no technical problem or obstacle at all. It's all about mindset. Now it would be great if our Prime Minister actually talked to the most important chairman in the world in power markets and actually understood what our biggest trading partner was saying. If you'd like to throw to you, uh, you have some experience with what happens after you have the technology up and running and you want to deploy it in the world amongst communities and people. Uh, are you working on any uh, reports or any interesting things at the moment that might address the question of justice and equity once you actually have the technology there ready, ready to deploy? Thanks, Tom. Um, well, that's a lot of what I do is around going... We're not only seeing a, a shift and a transition from uh, dirty to clean, we're also seeing a shift from centralised to decentralised. 
we're going to build some big renewables. Um, there's still going to be some centralised renewables, but we're going to see a lot more localised energy. And I think one of the things to think about when we think about renewable superpowers is to think about the re renewable micro-businesses, both in terms of uh, businesses in communities, but also the entrepreneurial spirit that it, it potentially enables. Think uh, people selling on eBay. Think people uh, trading on Etsy. What all of this local and uh, global uh, small-scale entrepreneurialism could be powered by renewables. That's what's so exciting. But not only can it be powered by renewables, it can be renewable. Uh, so what we're seeing in places around the world, like New York, where they're leading on transforming their energy system, is they're transitioning their energy system to a local energy system. They're creating local energy trading platforms. So me, as a household, as a person who rents, I can buy solar off the roof of my house next door. I can see the solar panels on the roof from my kitchen next door. Wouldn't it be great if I could buy some of that solar output? What if I had a share in a solar farm called a solar garden and I got that electricity credited on there for my electricity bill? If I lived in an apartment, we could put it on the car park across the road. All of these new business model opportunities happening around the world, they're not happening here because of the structure of our energy system. We're seeing community energy groups innovate. We're seeing people trying to do things, but every way they turn, there's a new barrier. Be it the Corporations Act, be it our energy market systems, be it the network company that they're negotiating with, the retailer. We have to transition not only the technology, but the institutions and the governments of our energy system, we need to localise that, we need to give consumers and communities a real seat at the table when they're doing that, and we also need to shift that mindset, because that is what is holding us back. So that's the problem. I'm talking to you about two solutions. So I'm working on a project called Renewables for All. These are the policies and the business models that enable all Australians, no matter where they live, no matter how, they, how much they earn, these are the business models and policies that will enable them to participate in and benefit from the renewable transition. I'm also working on a really exciting report for Get Up and Solar Citizens called the Home Grow Power Plan. These are the, all the policy solutions we think are needed to get to 100% renewable electricity. So it takes the ideas set out on the BZE report and takes those policy, high level policy recommendations and goes, these are the actual policy leaders we need in terms of market reform, in terms of empowering consumers, in terms of energy innovation, and in terms of removing the roadblocks, which includes removing coal-fired power stations, removing fossil fuel subsidies, and the cleanest energy of all, the energy we don't use. I want to ask you a question about, uh, you mentioned, uh, I guess, technology becoming part of our household, something that we have a personal connection with, and uh, the Tesla Model 3 electric vehicle just, just came up earlier. Uh, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about electric vehicles and have some of your party's uh, policies around them and how you think they might help the transition discussed in this report. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I just have one to, wanted to point out that both Nikki and Emma said that this is a complex issue and there's no question about that. And both climate change problems and solutions cut across so many sectors, transportation being one of the big ones. I think in Australia, 17% of our emissions come from the transportation sector, and that's because it's all fossil fuel based, really. Um, so we've been working in New South Wales, uh, um, 
um, the Greens on trying to convince the government to introduce some incentives for, so people, for people to take up the technology of electric vehicles um, and to make it, to rather jump start, I guess, the use of electric vehicles uh, by ordinary people. It's still quite expensive, but the prices, of course, are coming down with the introduction of the Tesla 3. We also have the lease. Um, so the package that we introduced on Sunday actually includes incentives like electric vehicles uh, to be able to drive in transit lanes, a stamp duty to be removed from electric vehicle sales, as well as registration fees to be halved, but also for government-free cars to be more electric-based um, vehicles, as well as incentives for installation of solar charging stations. So the Tesla that I looked at on over the weekend was being charged, for instance, by solar panels on Westfield and Chapswood. So I think these are the sort of things that will enable quicker uptake. So we have like a five-year package within five years if we can do some of these things. Uh, we do believe that there will be more uptake of vehicles. But of course, this is all dependent on us moving towards renewable energy as well. After all, if you know, electric vehicles are powered by renewable energy, then that's the main issue. But just adding one more point, I think, Emma, you talked about a just transition. And of course, we have a real opportunity here of um, you also jump-started manufacturing in Australia. For example, in South Australia, where the car, car industry is dying out, we could actually uh, put into place manufacturing for electric vehicles as well. I think those are the sort of cutting edge things that Australia really needs to look for. Well, um, I think, I think the, the lesson, or one of the many lessons we've learned over the last several years of having had a couple of goes of this, um, is uh, and also the controversy around the renewable energy target over the last couple of years is that is that I think the Australian people respond to uh, measures around climate change that, that they can sort of touch and feel. Uh, that's why renewable energy is so popular. Why talking about transitioning our car fleet is so popular. By talking about um, you know the return to broad-scale land clearing in Queensland is so unpopular because people get that stuff, and I think what they uh, what they want, my sense is, um, is a is a suite of policies that they can touch and feel, rather than the sort of focus that you often sort of gravitate to a national political debate around things like market mechanisms and emissions trading schemes or carbon taxes. Uh, these are, the polling shows, these are still things that people are suspicious about because they can't quite see and conceptualise in their own mind how that changes things. Um, growing renewable energy, thinking about a, a program to start shutting down the dirtiest coal-fired power stations, people get that. And the polling, the, the, the vast array of polling that's happened over the last couple of years, I think reflects that. You're listening to 3CR Radio. You're with the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. We're in Sydney, and the community is now getting a chance to speak to the panel. The first question was about removing subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. Mark Butler gave his answer, but I'd like you to stay listening because at the end, the last question got a loud ovation from the audience, and I wonder if you agree if these are the questions you want answered too. Thanks for those easy questions. Um, it's good stuff, the easy ones. Uh, look, I, I think the, the fossil fuel subsidy uh, question is well understood and we're, we're looking at it and we've been uh, 
know, it's been raised by us a lot as I've gone around the country over the last few months formally consulting about our policy. Uh, I think we understand the, the issue well, it's particularly a diesel fuel tax rebate issue. That's the big one in Australia, particularly as of the past to the mining industry, because that's been the very substantial growth uh, over the period of the mining boom up to about $2 billion a year. So I'm not in a position to tell you what our, what our view about that is now. We're, we've just finished our consults over the last two weeks, and we're in the, in the process of sort of working through that so that we can announce very detailed policy well, well before the election. On the other, on the other question about um, uh, how you how you grow renewables, but also find a way to start shutting down the existing, in some cases, very old, uh, heavily polluting coal-fired power stations. That is something the industry itself is actually starting to uh, work up models about because they recognise that this is a very substantial problem, not something they recognised really two or three years ago. So there's been some really fantastic work being done uh, through a number of universities and think tanks, the ANU in particular, Frank Jobso, uh, did some really uh, exceptional work in the latter part of last year that started a debate that I don't think we were having before then about how we, how we find a way to transition um, uh, the older, dirtier coal-fired power stations in a proper sequence, in an orderly sequence. Now, I'm from South Australia at the moment. Uh, like this week, we've got notices being given to the power station works in Port Augusta. Two power stations there in associated ground coal mine. Well, they're old and they're heavily polluting. But in another way, South Australia's um, a difficult jurisdiction to withdraw generation capacity from. I mean, if you're going to do it in an orderly way, that might not be the first one you did, and it was done without notice. It's done with no structural adjustment for a region that's economically very challenged already. So there's a lot, a lot of the discussions I've been having, including having visited the Collie River Valley in WA, the Trove Valley in Victoria, the Hunter, the Illawarra over the last several weeks. A lot of that discussion has been about the sort of policies that I've been Anyone here heard of the National Electricity Objective? Six or seven people, that's great. You should all know that. It's the one sentence that rules the whole electricity industry from the regulator, the rulemaker, the market operator, down to the lowliest of the generators, um, and all of the network companies. And it says, and I quote, that the electricity system should operate in the long-term interest of consumers, where the long-term interests of consumers are defined as price, reliability, safety, quality, and security of supply. Nothing about the environment, nothing about climate change, nothing about fairness or justice. We need to rewrite that, electric, that National Electricity Objective, or NEO, so that we give marching orders to all of our energy market institutions to take into account that an energy transition is happening and that it might need to consider climate change in doing so. The largest investors in renewable energy projects. So unscrambling the egg is even more complicated than your question suggests, that's because the same companies are doing both sides of the ledger on this particular issue. Um, secondly, I, I think one of the problems that we've had that, 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 that the, the Neo and the, the comment that Nikki made is this, uh, this focus on, sole focus on price is the only indication of performance has also led us to struggle. I mean, if you actually factored in carbon pricing, which we did temporarily, into electricity pricing, 
then you've got a much broader representation of value. If we're solely going for the cheapest electricity in the world, we'll be back to 100% coal. So it becomes a question of rethinking value as well as just looking straight at a very one-dimensional perspective on the price. So, that, so when you're thinking about energy sector transformation, you actually need to be looking at all sides of the dice when you're rolling it for the future. I'm going to jump in. I know we've had three goes on this. I'm going to give a fourth go because I disagree with two of the three comments we just made totally. Fire beware. The buyer of the grid just paid 1.6 times book value and they know exactly what they bought. I think privatisation is beside the point. They knew what they were getting into when they paid that price. No one forced them to buy the asset. So it's not about privatisation. It's about getting a regulator who actually has a vision and a plan of what our energy market's going to look like in the next 20 years and start regulating for that. So by removing conflicts, by removing the fact that the New South Wales government was both regulator, power generator and grid transmission, that is just conflict after conflict after conflict. No wonder they can't actually make a bloody decision. Now they don't own the generators, they don't own the grid, they can actually regulate. And so my thinking is privatisation is great. We've just sold the asset to the Chinese for a record price. We haven't locked in the, the um, pricing structure. Now the New South Wales government can get on and actually regulate and plan for a transition that is inevitable and it's going to happen and it's going to lower electricity prices for everyone in Australia. So I think privatisation is fine. It's actually freed New South Wales up to now get on with doing the right thing. So while we're doing that, there's a capacity to increase jobs by tens of thousands, and I think that's the, the missing feature that a lot of... Could I answer that question in a different way? If we as a country had a political objective and policy and vision for our country that acknowledges the inevitable transition that's going to come, industry and banks will get behind it. Now, I'll just give you an example by referring to media. Prime Minister Modi, elected in May 2014, first thing he does, he cuts the diesel subsidy, a massive fossil fuel subsidy. Next thing he does, he waits a tax on coal. Then he doubles the tax on coal, doubles it again. Then he sets a vision of 100 gigawatts of solar by 2021. Now, India put in almost no solar until the day Modi was elected. They spent six months thinking about it, and then in the next 12 months, they installed 300% more solar in 2015 than they did in 2014. And the government target for solar in 2016 is 12 gigawatts. 300% growth on what they did last year, and finance is absolutely key. So in the space of 18 months, Prime Minister Modi, Energy Minister Boyer of India have catalyzed $100 billion of capacity from a standing start and they will exceed all of their targets that they set less than two years ago. So the capacity is there, the finance markets are there. As Emma said, we spent 10 years building that capacity. We've been two years under the Liberals destroying it. It will come straight back, just as India has shown, and the technology change is inevitable. Just look at India. The largest the jigsaw here in Australia was the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. Uh, having a green bank, which they do in Europe, the UK, North America, and certainly they have government involvement in these finance and building financial capability in the private sector in Asia as well was utterly critical, which is why along the Greens Party we sort of put our body in between the government and the CEFC and had that protected because the private banking industry needed, I think, that sort of 
um, government body to sort of hold its hand through that transitional process. Exactly, 100% agree. And CAC is critical. Just uh, one of the things I have a lot to do, uh, do a lot in finance, because community energy projects are essentially finance projects. They're about enabling you, all of us to be able to invest in renewable energy. So the flip side of the point of the divestment campaign. We don't have the structures in place that enable all of us to be able to do that, yet we also don't have uh, a finance industry that knows how to invest in really small projects. And most of our renewable energy system is going to be, or a significant part, is going to be small and local. So that's a skill set and an institutional set that we need to change because in Germany, 47% of all renewable energy installed capacity is owned by consumers and communities. That's the type of ownership structures that I think we want to see here in Australia, and we need to build the finance capacity. Um, we hear from Gerard that we have the feasibility for 100% renewables. We hear from Tim that the Indian government is zooming ahead with potential solar energy. We hear from Marine and New South Wales Greens that the feasibility of renewable energy is for employment so much higher than in the fossil fuel industry. So, um, Mark, in the week that I hear about coral bleaching on the Barrier Reef, yesterday hearing the Labor Premier defend her decision to go ahead with the car after mine was about employment. Please, can you tell me what the federal Labor policy is? Can you keep the coal in the ground because we don't need it? Well, I was, I was a little surprised by that announcement, um, I have to say, because uh, it's only, I think, in February that Adani put this project on hold, saying uh, that the state of the world coal market, which I don't think anyone expects to recover in the foreseeable future, makes the project commercially unviable. Now, Tim talked about the Shenhua uh, CEO statement. Uh, that came about the same time that the company announced that it would not be proceeding with the Shenhua coal mine in a Liverpool plant, precisely because of the depressed coal price. Now, um, the Queensland Resources Council says that I think about two-thirds of the thermal coal mines in Queensland are already operating at a loss. No one I've spoken to thinks that the Carmichael mine is even close to commercially viable, given where the coal market is at the moment. Um, as Tim talked about, the three big coal markets in the world, the US, China and India, that account for about three quarters of the consumption, are in very, very steady decline. The US has been for a decade. China reduced its thermal coal imports last year by 30%. India's thermal coal imports in December year on year were down 34%. Um, you know, it, it just doesn't seem to me that this, this project, and frankly the announcement, is a practical reality. Um, now, we're obviously going to dig through the detail of this. Um, given what Adani said only a few weeks ago, given what every financial analyst and industry expert has said to me, uh, this announcement You've been listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show from Sydney tonight. We want to give a big thank you to the Minister and the people of the Pitt Street Uniting Church for the venue and for the beautiful welcome they gave us for putting on the launch of the Renewable Energy Superpower. And a huge thank you to the BZE Sydney team who put this event on. 
We've heard from Mark Butler tonight, who is the Shadow Minister for the Environment, Dr. Meereen Farquhar, Greens, New South Wales, Nikki Ison, Emma Hurd, uh, CEO of the Investor Group on Climate Change, Gerard Drew from BZ, our very own BZE, Gerard Drew, the Research Director for BZE, Keetan Joshi as MC and Tim Buckley from the Institute for Energy, Economics and Financial Analysis. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, why not go to the bze.org.au website and share this podcast podcast uh, with your friends you can email it link it or like it and thanks to the to the gang that's viv on production roger with podcasts teddy on the promos jody for social media and myself on panel stay tuned for save albert park